we're in a series that we've entitled uh, Living in the Light, a series out of the book of 1 John. And uh, for the last two months, we explored the truths of this incredible letter, uh, of uh, the letter from the Apostle John, one who had walked with Jesus. And uh, over the last two weeks, uh, John has had us focused in on two tests of the faith. Uh, in 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 3 through 6, uh, we talked about the moral test. Uh, the test of doing uh, as Christ has commanded us uh, to live out our lives, to obey his commands and to walk as Jesus did. And that we can't say that we have fellowship with God and, and not live as Jesus did. That is one of the tests, that is the moral test uh, that is laid before us in First John. Now the second test that we see is in First John chapter 2, verse 7 through 11. This is called the love or the relational test. In regards to this test, uh, we see that the process of passing this test is to live out the great commandment, to love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors <clears throat> as ourselves. And then great part of this, uh, great important truth of this test is that we cannot have fellowship with God, the Scripture says, if we hate our brothers. And we learn that there was uh, uh, a great distinction between love and hate, that there's no middle ground and so here are these two tests, the moral test and the relational or love test that says you can know you are a believer. You can know you are a child of God if you pass these tests. Well, there's one more test in this letter. It's called the doctrinal test. And we're not going to get to that uh, this morning. That will come later on in John's letter to us. Uh, but today, John takes a hiatus, if you will, from the main thrust of his message, if you will, in dealing with these tests, and spends the next couple verses talking to the recipients of this letter, whom he affectionately calls uh, my dear children. I want to have a stand as we read our text this morning and then get into our uh, message uh, of what God would have to say to us today. First John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, this is what the Word of our God says. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Father God, once again, we come before you, and we thank you for your Word. We take it for granted, this Word that you have uttered to us, the God-breathed Scriptures that comes from you in heaven, written by human hands that were carried on along by the Holy Spirit. We thank you for John and his writing, and that Lord... Through your divine plan, he would write these words that would articulate your heart and your words to us. Lord, today is a, a message of encouragement. Uh, Lord, we live difficult time, in difficult times. We struggle with difficult issues and circumstances in our lives. And Lord, even within this letter, there are difficult truths that we are called to receive. And so, Father, it is so good of you to put in words of encouragement. To speak to your children as a father speaks to his children with love and affection. 
Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged this morning. Not just encouraged that we're doing a good job or a pat on the back, Father, but that we would be encouraged to know what you have done for us. That because of your Son coming to this world and because of His death, burial, and resurrection, because of the giving of the Holy Spirit, because of your providential care in our lives, all that the prophets and the apostles have written about, Lord, that we would be encouraged, that our hearts would know that we not only know you, but as First John chapter 3 will tell us, that you have lavished your love on us. Oh, Lord, I know there are many in this place that need encouragement today. Father, I pray that that would uh, be a reality, that people would walk away being filled with your Spirit so that they may take on the troubles and the, and, uh, the uh, troubles and trials that, that come, uh, Father, uh, because of this world, which we'll ter- learn about even next week, uh, the world that all of its desires and parts will one day pass away. So, Father, keep our eye on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would resonate again what has just been sung, that we need you every hour, or we would find ourselves totally discouraged and lacking in our faith. In Christ Jesus we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Years ago, a Dear Abby uh, column was written, and a story ran about a retired school teacher. One day she had her students take out two sheets of paper and list the names of the other students in the room. Then she told them to think about the nicest things they could say about each of their classmates and write it down by their names. She then took the papers home that weekend and compiled a list for each student of what the others had said about him or her. On Monday she gave each of the students their list. Before long, everyone was smiling. Really, one person whispered, I never knew that, any, uh, that uh, that meant anything to anyone. I didn't know anyone liked me that much. Years later, the teacher went to a funeral of one of her former students who had been killed in Vietnam. Many who had been in that class years before were there. After the service, the young man's parents approached the teacher and said, We want to show you something. Mark was carrying this when he was killed. The father then pulled out of his wallet the list of all the good things that Mark's classmates had said about him. Thank you so much for doing that, Mark's mother said. And as you can see, Mark treasured it all his life. A group of Mark's classmates overheard the exchange. One smiled sheepishly and said, I still have my list. It's in my top desk drawer at home. Another came up and said, I have mine too. It's in my diary. I put mine in a wedding album, said a third. I bet we all saved them, then said a fourth. I carry mine with me at all times, he said. At that point, the teacher sat down and cried. And she used that assignment in every class for the rest of her teaching career. It's a heart-touching story about the need for us to be encouraged. Young and old, rich or poor, educated or non-educated, successful or failing, we as people have an innate desire to be encouraged. There's something about who we are that just loves when someone we love or someone who has watched us in life come up and put their arm around us and say, well done. 
I think that's one of the amazing things about when we get to heaven and we'll stand before our Jesus, that words of encouragement will come out of his mouth. Well done, good and faithful servant. We need encouragement. We need in this world of difficulty and discouragement and trials and temptation and failures to know that there is someone there who loves us and is willing to share words of encouragement and affirmation uh, to us, uh, a people. Now, as I look at how this world of encouragement has, has impacted the hearts of people, I, I have to tell you that in one of the most turning point times of my life, it was an encouraging word by uh, my youth pastor that I believe with all my heart changed the course of my life. He didn't say much other than affirmed that God had great plans for me. He affirmed the good things that he saw. Now, he could have spent all his time, and Lord knows he could have spent hours talking about the issues in my life. He could have talked about where I had failed and where I had messed up. But God had given him words of encouragement. You know, encouragement is like someone just pouring on a dry, sun-filled day pitcher of water over you. It's refreshing. It refills. It allows you to have courage that you never had before. In fact, the word encouragement means literally to put courage into someone. Now John is writing to a people who are fearful. John is writing to a people who are disturbed. John is writing to a people who are distressed because there are these people around them that are saying that you don't have to follow the ways of the Lord. You don't have to follow Jesus' words to have fellowship with Him. And the Apostle John comes in and says, that's not true Christianity. I know Jesus. I walked with Jesus. I talked with Jesus. And if we say we have fellowship with God, then we must walk as Jesus did, as we learned a couple weeks ago. And we can't say that we love our God in heaven and hate our brother. We have to uh, enjoy the fellowship of God, not just talk about it uh, with our mouths. And yet, during this time, John is hammering the people in this letter. A lot of you have said, Tim, I thought this, uh, this series uh, was entitled to give us assurance. It is. We'll see that at the very end uh, of the letter that he says he writes us so that we may know that we have eternal life and that eternal life is found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the purpose of the letter, to give people an assurance of their faith. But assurance can only come when we have shown ourselves to pass the test. And so John is nailing down every argument, every pretension that comes that says... I can live any way I want to and have fellowship with God. And amidst that, the true believers in John's midst must have been worried. Am I a true believer? Am I one uh, who is in fellowship with God? And so John utters these words, verses 12 through 14, to encourage their hearts. Now we know, as I've said, the need for encouragement. That cannot be seen in anything greater than the popularity of the book, The Chicken Soup for the Soul. Over two million of them have been sold worldwide. I've got to be honest with you, I've never read one of them. I've seen my wife has a couple of them, but I've never read them. And so I had to go to Wikipedia to even find out what these things were all about. And there's books of short stories that are used, and I'll give you the vision that they have, to bring hope 
courage and inspiration to the reader through stories that encourage the heart and touch the life of the reader. This is what John is wanting to do. In essence, he stops in the middle of what he's articulating as if he recognizes, man, this message, this letter is getting heavy. Uh, this letter is, is going to probably cause some of the recipients to really start to doubt their faith. And in the middle of chapter 2, he stops and gives what I would like to call, and I don't mean to be crass with it, uh, God's chicken soup for the soul. Uh, the remedy for what ails you. He wants to assure them that they are believers. And he articulates some things. But within this great message of encouragement, uh, we see three things that it involves. First of all, it involves a troublesome passage, a troublesome passage to interpret. I got to tell you that this has probably been one of the hardest sermons to prepare for. Now you'd say, why? It's not, you're not talking about God's wrath, you're not dealing with the issue of money, you're not dealing with touchy issues that people may have myriads of uh, uh, different responses to. It seems like a pretty open and shut case. John is just gushing over the recipients of this letter, and he's wanting to articulate God's love and encouragement to his people. Why would it be so troublesome? Well, I see five troublesome things that I want to bring to your attention. The first one is, and Rob, you can throw these up there one at a time. The first one that we see that makes this uh, troublesome passage to interpret is the question, why does John, and I want you to write these down so we can recognize it, why does John use the word right in the present tense three times and then shift to what we call the aorist tense. Now, you will not see this in the NIV. The NIV doesn't translate uh, word for word, but mostly phrase for phrase in their translations. But if you have an ESV Bible or a New American Standard Bible, you will see that three times in our text, in verses 12, he says, I write to you. In verse 13, I write to you fathers. In verse uh, 13 at the middle point there, I write to you young men. And then, and at the end of verse 13, he says, I have written to you, dear children. I have written to you, fathers. I have written to you, young men. Why does he do that? Um, did he stop writing? Some commentaries think that maybe uh, he stopped, and I don't mean to be too funny, but stopped for a cup of coffee or dinner and came back to the letter and says, well, I've already written these things. And so midway through, he has stopped writing his letter. And then when he resumes, he, he goes to the heiress form to say, I've already written these things. These are things that have been done in the past. Another commentator said that maybe there is an unknown a letter that he has already written to these people about these things. And so maybe even though it's not in canon, we know that the apostles probably wrote many different letters to many of these churches. And that the, uh, this was one of those times where the apostle John writes a letter that isn't in the canon of scripture. That he then is saying, remember I wrote to you in a previous letter regarding these things? The answer is we just don't know. We, we don't know why he does that, and there's no real suitable answer to that, but it brings some trouble to the text. Number two, why does he use different terms for children? He uses two different Greek words for the children. Technia, which literally means in that scene in verse 12, born ones. And padia, which means young children in verse 13. Now, 
in the Greek, we see these two separations. Now, there is some speculation that what we see, and look to your text for a moment, when he says, I write to you, dear children, technia, he's talking about the entire church. Just as he has said in verse 1 of chapter 2, my dear children, he says that in verse 28 of chapter 2, and now, dear children, continue in him. And so we we could be that we're dealing with the entire church and then he's going to break down the church uh, into different groups. Again, we don't know and it brings forth trouble to interpret and understand exactly what John is meaning. Number three, why does John say particular things to each group? Why are there these groups? Uh, These fathers and these children and these young men. And what is he trying to articulate to each of these groups? What was significant about each of these groups that he then says the things that he does about every one of them? Can we understand and know why he's telling the fathers what he's telling them and and understand what maybe the fathers were dealing with? Again, uh, we don't know. We also have the question, are these groups based on age or spiritual maturity? Well, if we go with age... Uh, it seems like it would be the case because we have fathers, we have children, we have young men. Uh, but that, of course, then rules out women. And we would want to make sure that and recognize that John never gives that distinction, but that this is to all of them. And so that probably the best way to understand it is to understand it on spiritual maturity. Number four, why does John repeat many of his phrases? Look at our text again. He says uh, in verse 13, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Now notice what he says in verse 14. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Uh, in verse uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, that, that's, that's the two, uh, two uh, what do you call it, uh, repetitions that are going on. Now why does he do that? Some commentators say, that John is doing that for a stylistic purpose, to reiterate uh, something of great importance. But again, we, we don't know. We don't know why he does that. Uh, he's just said it. It's not as if he said it in chapter 1 and then comes back three or four chapters later and articulates it. It's a verse later that he repeats the same thing. We don't see that very often in the Scripture. And then number five is the final thing that makes this troublesome. Why in his list of each of the groups are they out of chronological sequence? Notice what happens. He articulates about children. Then he goes in verse 13 to fathers. Then he goes at the end of verse 13 and does young men. He does that again at uh, the end of 13, 14, and then 14b. You would think if he was dealing uh, with uh, the spiritual maturity of the believers, he would start at the life cycle of children. And then any good teacher would then start then to go to young men and then finish up with fathers. But he doesn't do that. He, it seems in the, uh, in the original Greek that the climax is pointed to young men. That's where you want to be. Now you would think, as a believer, I want to be a spiritual father. So why would you finish, John, and why would you in the original language give this impression that young men is where the church needs to be? All of these things, and and there's a couple other smaller ones, makes this a very difficult passage to understand and interpret. Now, I've looked at a number of commentaries, a number of sermons, 
And, and some go after each one of those things, and I think they're missing the point. Because we don't understand all of what John is saying, but there is enough there for us to understand what he is saying that should change our lives. There's nothing new and profound that any of the commentaries bring to this discussion. But what I want to do is I want to focus in on what we can know. There's great questions, and we can speculate about them, and we could spend hours doing that. Uh, but we've got a second service and ABF to worry about, so we won't do that. But I like what John Stott says in his commentary on this letter. He says, John is laying a foundation and emphasis on the assured standing in which every Christian has come. Whatever his stage of spiritual development, he calls us to be assured and encouraged with what God has done and is doing in our lives. I like that. That's simple. John Stott says we can focus in on these things and if we do that, we miss out that what God is wanting to do is encourage you and to assure you no matter where you're at in your Christian walk. I can preach that. That's something that I can get behind and get excited about that I can help people see and allow them to change their lives. In layman's terms, John is saying, I know the first part of this letter hasn't been easy. I know that there are false teachers that have got you scared and doubting your faith. I know that many of you in our midst are falling to sin and you're questioning, am I a believer? How can I fall to that same sin over and over again and still believe that I'm a believer? John says, I recognize these are difficult truths. These are difficult things for us to understand. So as any good pastor would, he loves on them. And he shares God's affection and affirmation to them. And that brings us to our second point this morning. Within this text, we see a biblical principle that is of great importance. After we get beyond the troublesome issues of the passage, we see that the main point of this passage is to assure true believers that they can find their assurance in their fellowship with God. Notice what he says. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. The first principle that John wants to lay forth is a principle of encouragement. It's a principle of encouragement. He wants to build encouragement within him. He wants to say, you are saved. Those who are walking with God, those who are striving to do all that they can to live as Jesus did, to obey his commands, though you suffer, though you fall, though you are tempted... Though there are times that you speak with greater affection about Jesus than that which is in your heart, I want to share with you that you're saved. And you can be assured of that. Now, Tim, where do you see that? I see that in the use six times of the word because. It's found in the perfect tense, and it's an explanatory clause, this word because. Be assured, children, because your sins have been forgiven. Be assured, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. Young men, be assured, 
because you have overcome the evil one. Children, be assured, you know, you've known the Father. Fathers, be assured, you've known Him who's from the beginning. Be assured, young men, because you're strong. The Word of God lives in you and you've overcome the evil one. John is telling us that our assurance of our salvation, my friends, is not found in the things that we do per se, but what Christ has done for us. We don't need to sit there and say, look at all the things I've done. You know, we rate spiritual growth in that way. Spiritual growth can be viewed as, well, look, I've been a Christian for a long time. Look how spiritual I am. That's what assures me of my salvation. Spiritual growth will say, but look at the size of my class or Bible study or church. Uh, Obviously, uh, God is is doing great things, and, and that means that I'm growing spiritually. That's not the case. So where do we get our assurance? If it's not in the things per se that we do, our assurance must come because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's where he begins. He says, be assured, children, because you have been forgiven of your sins for his name's sake. He even addresses that, and we'll we'll get to that in our third point this morning, that it has nothing to do with you, but it has all to do with God. I'll shut up because I don't want to take my third point away. It's an encouragement. And it's an encouragement, and we see this biblical principle over and over and over again. John was an apostle, and it seems that this was their way of writing. Paul and Peter and John all start out dealing mostly with the idea of who God is and what God is all about and God's desire to be involved in the reconciliation of mankind. And he deals with the, each of them deal with that idea they'll start by giving praise and glory to God. And they'll say, God is great. God is awesome. This is what God has done. And and, and Paul, especially of all the apostles, uh, shows this. He will talk and encourage them about what Christ has done in their lives, how God is providentially taking care of them in every step of the way. And then he'll say, now in response of this, go do some things. Based on what you know about who God is, now go and do likewise. That's what John is talking about. He says, okay, you know that God is light. In him there is no darkness. You know that Jesus Christ had fellowship with God. Now go and do likewise. Obey his commands and walk as Jesus did. There's this encouragement to do so. But there are times in our lives where we uh, lose that level of assurance. I was talking with a gentleman just this morning who struggles with uh, his identity in Christ. And I told him, and and I'll address this to many of you, that many times the very nature of you asking that question shows that you're a believer. I don't know about you, but I don't go to work, and I don't go to my neighbors and all that, uh, that are unbelievers, and they say, you know what, Tim, I've really been questioning my spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. That doesn't come in a life of the flesh. That comes out of a yearning of the life of the Spirit saying, I want assurance. Jesus, assure me of this, of what you've done. I am of little faith. I want to be shored up. I want to be encouraged to know that I'm in you. Boy, if that doesn't sound like true Christianity, I don't know what is. And so I tell this individual and many others who come up and say, I'm not sure, am I saved or not? I say, be encouraged. It's not because of your doubts that you're saved but it's because you have put your faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, you are striving, not perfectly, 
but you are striving to live as Jesus did. He wants us to be encouraged about it. Now, why this focus and, and, and uh, uh, push on the question of spiritual growth? Isn't it more important to deal with the issue of salvation? Shouldn't we just be able to say, well, we've done these things and, and then we're saved? Yes, in part, that could be the case. But as we've talked about numerous times already in this series, that we know it is for by grace we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not by any works that we can do that any of us could boast about. And spiritual growth comes after that. Spiritual growth is the idea that we are God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works. Our drive and our purpose should be because of grace because of the faith that we've been given to look to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of that faith, and to point to him and say, he is my Lord, he is my Savior, because of what Christ has done for me, now I will live a life of total gratitude to Jesus Christ. I tell people that I'm living a marriage of gratitude because Amanda said yes, now I do whatever she wants because I am so thankful that she did say yes. And so that I just live out just telling her every day, thank you for saying yes. I don't know where I'd be without you, Amanda. She's not here today, so it's not like I'm buttering her up because we had a fight. But make sure one of you gives her the CD. That would be good. But our life in Christ should begin at the point of our conversion. We get on our knees and say, yes, Jesus, I need you. Yes, Jesus, you have saved me from my sins. And I want to live my life out of total gratitude for what you've done. And I'm going to use my gifts to do it. And John is assuring them, move on to spiritual growth. Why? Because you're assured of your salvation. Now stop living as the world does. Stop living as these Gnostics tell you to live and live like Jesus. Notice the next thing that comes up. It is a, uh, also involves this uh, principle, edification. Uh, the idea of edification, what that means is, is the building up of others. We talk about something being edifying. It is something that builds up. It doesn't tear down. And so you say, Tim, where do you see edification in this, uh, in this uh, passage of Scripture? I see it with the familial, if you will, uh, terminology and metaphor that is used. Dear children, young men, and spiritual fathers. And I look at that and I say, aren't you glad... That as a little child, you're not left. Your mom and dad have you. And uh, at the time that they're walking out of the hospital, uh, they, they say, all right, little guy, on your own. Go. We did our part. The mom more than dad. But, but we've done it. It's all taken care of. Now, now go, move on. That's what we don't do. And we'll be put in jail if we do that because the job of the parent is to edify the child, to build up the child, to grow the child. We do that through words of encouragement. We do that with uh, um, careful and uh, consistent discipline. Uh, we do that through a stern word of warning. And the job is for the parent to build up the child. But I don't know about you. I- I've got three boys. You know that. Seven on down, and I will tell you, I've matured more in those seven years. I've grown more in those seven years from those three little rascals than I've ever learned or grown before. 
The things that those three little boys have taught me about love and forgiveness and acceptance and joy and, and trials and suffering and, and pain. I just pray for the Badal fam. We got two letters from school in the same day. Amanda said if Luke was in school, he would have gotten a letter. And she felt like a pretty bad mom. I said, honey, this is the DNA coming out. There's nothing we can do about this. And so you learn as parents all of those things. So these little kids that know nothing are able to teach us. But it's not just with children and and parents, but it's you uh, young people. I know there's some of you teenagers that are saying, I wish I could be on my own. You know, you're 14 or 15, and I was there. You, You know you know everything. And you're just wondering why everybody's so stupid that they don't see that too. And so you're saying, I just want to be my own person. I just want to do my own things. Well, (laughs) one time I said that to my parents, not a smart thing to do. And my dad said, fine, go and do it. I'm like, wait a minute, you're not going to try to fight for me? You're not going to try to win my favor back so that I will place myself under your thing? He said, no. He says, things will be a lot easier around here. And it dawned on me, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not get too excited here. I don't have money to take care of myself. I don't have a job. I, I don't know what I need to be doing in life. And, and, and that was a reminder to me that even as a young man, I needed my mom and my dad. But you know, what I've learned about parents of, of young people is that it's the youth. See,